You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, Devoted listeners. Well, I'm a little feisty today, I think. Hopefully not in a bad way, but I don't know. I think I know where this came from. I, I want to say, where did this come from? I kind of know, okay? I uh, I probably saw something on the news. Okay, again, probably not. I, I did see something on the news. Like we often do, you're scrolling, you see something in the corner of your eye, and oh goodness, it gave me that ever so common feeling that you kind of get these days of just, ugh, really? Seriously? How did we get here? If you turn on your TV, if you turn on your computer, if you look at your phone, you know what I'm saying right now. You've seen something, you've read something, you know that this feeling of just almost shaking your head, can it get any worse? You know, those are the thoughts that that come across your mind. And, and there is just no shortage, it feels like right now, of the things in our world that feel hopeless. Now, this is not going to be an all negative, sad, just throwing us into all the bad news podcast. But I want to look at this just for a second, because we see these things that are just not good. And sometimes I think we hear so much that's not good that we get a little numb to the fact of how not good they are, because they really aren't good. Christians, we talk about this a lot. Abortion. Wow. Can anything get more abominable than that. I looked up a couple statistics on this because you know it's a lot, but you, you kind of morbidly curious, like, really? Like, how? And if you look it up, the statistics for in 2018, which I don't know why that's the last number that the CDC had reported, but it had 619,591 what they call legal abortions. That is an astounding number. That is life, folks. We are talking about 619,000 babies, people in one year that were killed. One year. And it does kind of kill me when you look up that statistic. Do you know what it's labeled as? It's labeled under reproductive health on the CDC site. I sort of feel like, um, you know, uh, I don't think you guys know what those words mean. Isn't that a line in like Princess Bride or something where I, I, I don't? think that means what you think it means. Reproductive health. That's what they call that, guys. That's what they call the death of 619,591 people. They call that reproductive health. Okay, that that should that should stop us in our tracks and we should that we should grieve that in our society for sure. But there's lots of other stuff beyond that. I was reading a story about a Catholic charity that there's a legal case that is involved where the welfare system, they said that every kiddo that was placed in a um, this this charity system, they said that they wanted all the kiddos to be placed in a home with a mom and a dad. And there was a legal battle against that because that's what this Catholic charity was trying to do, to place foster children in a home with a mom and dad. And in, as a result of it, it ended up displacing 2,000 kids. And I, I, I don't know where the story ended up and how they resolved that whole situation, but it was all based on the fact that this, they were trying to put kiddos in a family environment that had a mom and a dad. Okay, okay, that should kind of stick in our brains a little bit. Does, how, where, does that seem right? Lots of other stuff. 
How about father absence in America? That is a giant deal. The U.S. Census Bureau tells us that 18.3 million children, okay, guys, that's one in four kids, live without a dad of some kind, biological step, adoptive, something in the home. And the the thing that's uh, interesting in a sad way is then all of the statistics that you end up deriving from the fatherlessness in the home. And I mean, it's 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 everything. It's everything from poverty to um, higher crime, kids that run away from home, suicide rates. I mean, they're all higher in homes where there's no dad present. That's sad. That's one of those moments in the news where you go, oh, really? This this makes me sad. What is this day we're living in? You know, currently here in Oregon, and I know California is this way, and Washington, probably all kinds of states, we have some really nutty, radical sexual agendas that are being pushed into our schools at really young age, like shocking material that's being put into kids as young as kindergarten. And you, you shake your head again, and you kind of have that same feeling of like, Ugh, can it get any worse? What is going on? There's some stuff that if it would almost be laughable if it weren't true. But did you guys see a few weeks ago when they had the news about uh, the congressman who prayed and he closed his prayer with amen and a woman? Guys, are you kidding me? I'm sure you guys got to be with me on that one. I I just thought when I heard that, that makes no sense. Like, it actually doesn't make sense. There's there's not, not nothing that registers for me in that one. It reminded me of, I remember a couple years back, I want to say this was probably like a year and a half ago, but um, the California Board of Education, they had put forth this proposal for curriculum. And whenever it said history in the curriculum, I have to spell this for you guys because I, I don't know how you say this word, but because history contains his you know, H-I-S, and that is a male term, then they had to take that out. So they took out the, they took out the I and they added an R and an X. So you would spell history whenever, and this like kept coming up in this curriculum all throughout this handbook, whenever they are saying the word history, they would write H-X-R story. I, I don't know how you say that. So whatever that is, but just just crazy stuff, guys. Just just crazy. And you, you sit there and you're like, this just doesn't make sense. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Amy, you're getting a little political here. I don't know. This is, this is a podcast about the Bible and being devoted to the Word of God, and you sound a little political to me. Nope. This is not politics, guys. Morality is not political. God is the one who defines what is good and right and just right? I mean, he is holy. It's who he is. And he has set up the moral order to work as he deemed fit. So when there's things that are morality, things that are in the Bible, yeah, we should know that. And Christians, we kind of get a little soft on this whole conflict thing. And I'm with you. I totally get this. I would I would love to stay under the radar. You know, nobody, we don't we kind of want to avoid the controversy. I I get it. I would much rather kind of get along to go along whenever possible. And there's ways that we need to maintain a peaceable attitude regardless, right? For sure. But when things around us are going against the word of God, then that's not politics, but that's morality. 
And I just wanted to look at a couple of these things because I think we need to be reminded, and hopefully I'm going to encourage you in this too, but when we say things that those things are against what the Word of God says, where? Where? I mean, it seems easy that you would think, oh, oh, oh that's got to be easy. And it that's actually is pretty easy. But sometimes I find that we actually don't know where to turn on our Bibles to say, yeah, abortion, not good, not, not good. So I wanted to kind of give us a couple of, I want to look at these things. And where does it say this stuff in the Bible? Why do we know that this is going against God's word? Job 33, 4 says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Ooh, good, good verse right there. The Spirit of God has made me. We're image bearers. I'm going to read it in a minute. We're going to get into Genesis in a second too, but this is huge. It's interesting to me how culturally we've almost just anesthetized us to, you know, categorize abortion as reproductive health, right? I mean, that should just right there just be insulting to the brains that the Lord gave us. But we make it into these sterilized terms that make it sound like, oh, this is okay. But what is it that we are harming, that we're destroying? It's the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty is who gives us life. Okay, that that is that that image bearer, that stamp that God has placed on us. Psalm 139 has several ones, but this is my favorite. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Okay, guys, this is even before we're born. Even before we're born, the Lord was weaving and he knows exactly what our frame would be like. He knew that. He breathes the, it's the breath of the Almighty, like Job said, that it's giving us life. Okay, it's life, guys. That's where the Bible says that life matters. Life matters. And so, as Christians, when things like that come up, and nope, we don't, we don't want to get, we don't want to get political or whatever. That's a life issue. That's an issue that the Bible says matters, and that's why we care about it. But other stuff. What about some of those ones I gave you, like about you know the the fatherless and the and the family structure kind of thing? Where where in the Bible does it tell tell us that? Well, you can go all the way back to the beginning and you can check out Genesis one twenty seven twenty eight, and that's the first part where we we see that image bearer. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them and blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing. So here's our very back in the beginning when we're created and we could go on and on and and about male and female. Yep, there are two genders. That's all we got, guys. So those things are ordained by God. And right there, that's that's your first family right there. Male and female, he created them. There's a mom and there's a dad. That's just how he created. Now, we can argue and say, well, you know, that's not necessarily needed for this and all of that. But you you would be arguing with Scripture. Now, there are many, many, many amazing single mamas who have been or been put in situations, rather, where they are playing both of those roles. And those are folks we need to pray for, support, lend a hand to. I love it when there is, you know, a dad or an uncle or a family member or a neighbor that kind of steps in sometimes with the kiddos and and helps out in whatever way is possible. But 
that is not because it happens in our culture and because thankfully we know some amazing folks that have come being raised from single moms and that kind of stuff. And because it happens and there's been good success rates, that's not to put a stamp on and say, oh, that's the way the Lord intended it. No, it's not. Blessing on all of us that the Lord redeems and the Lord covers in so many ways. But that isn't necessarily, you know, the stamp that this is how it's going to happen. And we know that it isn't how it should happen because that's what it says in the Word. In Colossians, it kind of gives us that whole structure of the family. It's in Colossians 3. I like to read up uh, even in 17, start in 17. It doesn't really start talking about the structure of the family until 18, but 17 just kind of frames the whole context of that verse. Because 17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I just love that tone that Paul puts out there right there. But then he tells us what the structure of the family should look like. And he says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And and it goes on a little bit to talk about that structure. Ephesians 5 gives us this structure too, right? Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There is this structure that the Lord put in place. And it to me, it's just this really simple hierarchy. We don't like those words right today, but they're good. They're good. They're structured. They're order. And they're the way that the Lord created the family structure to work. And we do have Christ as the head. And then we have our husbands. And then we have the wives. And then we've got the kiddos. That's the order that it should go. Now, we see this all the time. Get out of whack and and the order doesn't work so well. If you see a family where it's kind of like the kiddos are running everything, that's out of order, right? We've taken something out of order and that's not how that was intended to go. And, and chaos typically ensues when when that kind of thing happens. But the God who made us, he set this up. It works. He knows it works. And you'd think we would too after checking out the stats around us. You don't have to do much research, guys. And you're, you'll find that families that are under a two-parent household, a mom and a dad, do well. They do better. And that's not because those parents are sinless or something like that. Nope. They're just, they're big sinners just like all of us. We all sin, but it's under the structure that the Lord created. And it's when we try to go outside of the Lord's, stru- the Lord's structure that we have all kinds of problems. So that sounds like it's political because our world made it political. But it's in the Bible that there is a right family structure and there is a way that it's supposed to be and a way it's not supposed to be. That last one I gave you on the A woman thing, gosh, I can't give you a scriptural reference on that one because that's just some crazy stuff. That's just beyond all reason and I and just not helpful. But we do have, for sure, a gender issue today. Or or perhaps better said, we have an issue with rightly viewing ourselves and others as image bearers, male and female, created by God. Like I said, got those two genders there. Maybe we'll tackle that on another episode. But ladies, for now, I just would like to say, please lead the charge with your kids and colleagues and family members away from this whole thing that's elevating one gender at the cost of the other gender. There's all of this movement to elevate women, elevate women. Well, every time they want to do that, they're always putting down men. And instead of rightly viewing all of his image bearers the way that they should be. So it's a whole different conversation. But I really am hoping that us as women, we don't we don't lean into that nonsense that's being played out there right now because it's 
might look like it's benefiting you as a woman. No, it's not part of God's design. Don't give in to that. So you guys okay? Yes, you know, you know, Amy, no fluff over here. But I wanted us to look kind of what scripture says and and line ourselves up with that. Line ourselves up with the our worldview needs to line up with what the word of God says. And, you know, when I say worldview, it kind of sounds like, okay, that's, you know, a class you took in college and maybe you were bored. But here's the thing. Take that word down out of the academic line, so to speak, okay? Because this isn't academic. Everybody's got a worldview. I mean, whatever that you have uh, been influenced by, it could be your past, it could be your school, but there's all types of things which are reading, they all kind of formulate and help us filter through that we come up then with this worldview. We've all got one. The question is, is what is it? And do you know what yours is? And so that's why we always want to be pointing back to Scripture. What does Scripture say about life? What does Scripture say about the family? What does it say about sin? And is it saying what my what the world is saying? And if it's not, we need to go back with the Bible. We need to make sure our Bible, our biblical worldview is in line. I, I, I love that term. I know it, it sounds, I don't know, maybe it sounds too formal, but it's just so important to have that filter of the Word of God, the biblical worldview to, to see where we are rightly needing to see culture and see our world around us. But here's where the encouragement comes from. So that was kind of all the bad stuff. And I know it's not fun to talk about. It's not fun to be reminded of. And you're like, Aim, I can, you know, watch the news for five minutes and get all of that. But I have a favorite word I want to throw out at you, onward. I love this word, onward. So it almost is like an old school word, and I'll give you some context to why I love this word so much. I love that there's movement to this word. You know, it's kind of like a marching order. It's a little bit of a battle cry, but it's onward. So I am a giant World War II history fan. I I just love to read World War history, uh, World War II history. I love to read stuff on Churchill. I have read, I mean, for Mother's Day, guys, I got a Churchill biography and I was so excited. I know I am so much fun. But in 1943, Churchill gave a speech where he, everybody refers to it now as his Onwards to Victory speech. And I, I saw a Churchill movie because, yes, I'm even so fun that I actually watch Churchill movies and documentaries and all of them. And I was watching a Churchill movie one time, and it was a theatrical version. It was not a documentary. So they could have been taking some artistic license here. I'm not sure. But he was giving this speech, this Onwards to Victory speech. And behind him, they had this great big banner that said, onward. And I'm sure he mentioned it in the speech or whatever. I actually tried to look up the whole text of that speech and I can't find it, but I sure can remember this banner that just said onward. And it particularly resonated with me because I, like I said, always being a Churchill fan, my dad was a giant Churchill fan. And when it was a couple months after my dad had died, and I think I had just recently rewatched this movie. And I, I just, th- that banner just kind of kept sticking in my head, this this onward. And I was, that, that was a rough time for me. And I remember I was in my office and I was kind of going through some of my dad's letters and journals and things like that. And I just kept seeing that banner flash into my mind. And I thought, you know what? If dad was sitting here with me today, right now, that would kind of be his marching orders to me. He knew that I would be obviously sad and grieved and all those things. But at the same time, my dad was not a super emotional guy. Let's be serious. But he'd be saying, onward. 
keep going. It's even linked a little bit to in World War II, they had that slogan of keep calm and carry on. Everybody's got a mug with it on it, right? I still have one. I know it's not really trending right now, but I still like my keep calm and carry on mug. But I kind of dig it, not because it was trendy back whenever that was, five years ago or whatever, but because of the saying behind it, it, it actually was a slogan that the British government came up with during the Blitz and when they were being bombed like every single night. I mean, life did, could not get much worse for them in Britain. And there was these posters all over town that they'd, they'd hang up in the midst of being bombed that said, keep calm and carry on. Onward. Just keep going. One foot in front of the other. So I love this word. Huge meaning for me. But the word tells us the same thing. Remember in in, uh, Philippians, Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Remember, the context of that verse in Philippians is that he's in jail. He's eventually going to get beheaded. Okay, it's not pleasant. He's not having a good day. Onward. That's what he's telling us. What what about, have you heard the, do you remember the old hymn, Onward Christian Soldier? I looked that old hymn up, and it was kind of interesting, the history. It was basically, it was written in 1865, and it was uh, based off of the verse in 2 Timothy 2.3, where it says, share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. But it was written as a, like a processional song for uh, kids that were going from, I think they were going into the church, into this parish where they would be learning. And, you know, and it was like even the way, like when the lyrics of the song would get them to the place, it was like by the time they got to the church, that was when they were prepared to engage in their religious studies. And it would giving them, you know, kind of this pep talk to, to the ability to struggle against sin and the wickedness of the world. That's what this song was intended to do. But it's interesting to me, you know, because it is, has become over the years a little bit of a battle cry for the Christian, right? And this sometimes does not go with our our modern day, I guess, sensitivities. And in 1989, they actually struck it from the Methodist hymnal. They took it out because it said, uh, there was a quote here, it said that, um, that it was too controversial, they thought. And they said, at best, The quote was, onward Christian soldiers is no longer relevant to sing, and at worst, it may be dangerous in perpetuating the acceptability of religious warfare, metaphorical or otherwise. So it was a little too feisty of a song for them for the Methodist hymnal in 1989, and they took it out. I find that interesting because I just, I like this term, onward. It reminds me of what Paul would say to us. He, you know, he, he would say onward. Press onward. When, again, I'm going to refer back to Winston Churchill, but he met with Franklin Roosevelt in 1941, and they were on a ship that there was a kind of a church service there. And Churchill was, I guess, asked to pick some of the songs that would be sung. And he requested that onward Christian soldiers should be sung. Interesting time. Again, it's a little bit of a battle cry. Definitely sounds like Churchill style. But he said this about the song. He said, we sang onward Christian soldiers indeed. And I felt that this was no vain presumption, but that we had the right to feel that we were serving a cause for the sake of which a trumpet has sounded from on high. When I looked upon the densely packed congregation of fighting men of the same language, of the same faith, of the same fundamental laws, of the same ideals, it swept across me that here was the only hope, but also the sure hope. I just, I kind of like these fighting words we have every now and then. And I think sometimes we need a little push. 
I think we need to hear a little bit of Paul's words, a little bit of a reminder from World War II, maybe a little Churchill pep talk onward. Keep going. Both of these circumstances are not good. Now, Paul's is obviously the most dire, but even World War II, that man, they did not know if Britain would continue to exist after that war. They had no idea. They did not see that victory was right there. And yet, what was the encouragement? It was onward. It was onward. That encourages me for the days that we live in right now. But I also want to think about, like, you know, what's the opposite of that? So if we're if we kind of don't want to take on these battle cries here and we don't want to do the onward Christian soldier thing, well, what's the opposite of that? And I guess I pictured stagnation, you know, there's times where I think that there's good times of input just collecting a lot of stuff, kind of like the marinating. You know, I I was at Athey for 20 years, just taking in the good stuff, learning the word every Wednesday, every weekend. I mean, I was just a sponge for the word. And I grew up in a Christian home and all of that, loved that Christian school, college, Bible college, absolutely. But there's just no end to the depths of the word of God. And I feel like, and yes, during that 20 years, there was definitely times of service where I was, um, it was not like I was just taking it all in and not giving it out, but it was, it was a little bit on a smaller level. You know, I would, I was, and there were spurts of it. Sometimes my, you know, my husband and I, we would do a ministry with the high school kids and we did a ministry with the newly marrieds. And so there was a little bit of um, back and forth on the different seasons. And I really think it's so important to really pray about what season you might be in, because we do have those where sometimes it you are called to just be in that place where you're just kind of sitting in the word, you're learning, and you're in that place of study and waiting on the Lord. And maybe it's not your turn to be doing doing things within the church. You know, I, our our pastor likes to often reference that the church is kind of like a hospital, and I and I like that image because there's lots of sick people in a hospital, aren't there? Now, yep, there's orderlies and there's nurses and doctors that know the way around the hospital, and we're we're thankful for those. But they they kind of point you to where you need to go, right? But we're all sinners; we're all kind of in the same same boat. But I I love that that's kind of what the church is. It's there for healing. It's there to be taken to the one that redeems our souls, literally helps us heal in every possible way, and. With that image, sometimes I feel like we just need to kind of sit there on the gurney for a little bit. But we're bad at this, right? Because sometimes we get into a situation at church and it's like, oh, but you could volunteer and you could do this and you can do this and you can do this. And it feels like there can be so much just, you know, do, 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 go, go do all these things. And I don't want to argue against that because there is 100% times where you got to do that too. The Lord's going to stir you and move you to go do some of those things. But you definitely need to, you want to be praying about what season that you're in. Because sometimes the Lord just might have you tending your own garden right now. You might be in a merry season and you need just to sit at his feet. And that could be a few months. That could be a year. Like I said, maybe it could be a little bit back and forth where, you know, you're, you're serving for a little bit and then you kind of pull back. Or it could be years that the Lord has you in that place of just taking in his word. But for me, in like about 2018, that was when the Lord started really stirring my heart. This onward kept coming up. And I didn't know what that meant. I, you know, five, 10 years ago, I had no idea 
that the Lord was preparing me for this level of ministry that he's called me for. I was not, I was never looking to do what he's called me to right now, but I was doing those things that he was calling me to do at that time. The output was going to my kiddos and family and volunteering and helping at some things in church, but it was, it was on a pretty small scale. But that's where the Lord had me at that time. And I didn't know what he was working on for down the road. But it was it was about 2018 when I just started feeling this onward. And I kept going, you know, Lord, what, what's next? What's next? And sometimes we will ask ourselves that question. I think we should ask ourselves that question because we do want to be careful that we don't become a stagnant Christian. Where when I when I picture stagnant, I think of, you know, just water just sitting there that has no life in it. I I, I picture a dirty puddle for some reason. And that's not what we want to be either. I love John 7, 38 says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We want that living water to pour from us. We don't want it. We don't want to just be stagnant where we are just taking in all the good stuff, but we're not sharing it onward, onward. We're going to keep coming back to that. Now, back to Paul for a second. We talked about where he's at in Philippians. It was not a good day for him. He was living under government authority that arguably is one of the craziest and wicked world leaders that we've ever seen in history. And his name was Nero. Bad dude. And, you know, I don't I don't care if you love or hate Trump or Biden. They are not a Nero. We have not had to survive under any kind of government that's been like that guy was. History records that he actually had his own mother killed, and he was known that he would uh, light Christians on fire alive as human candles. Not a good guy. So we're doing pretty good by comparison, right? But that pep talk Paul is giving in Philippians, he says, I press onward toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's in jail, and likely he knew it wasn't going to have a happy ending. Paul's situation was bad. Those stats and the things that I was, you know, I started this podcast with, no, they're not good. But here's where I challenge myself and hopefully you too, that as I read what's going on in the news, and way too often, I'm with you guys, I get discouraged. It feels like it's a losing battle. What can I possibly do? What am I to do, Lord? And I don't know what that exact answer is for you during these times. I do think that we should pray about that. I think we should ask the Lord, man, what would you have me do right now? Would you have me do something? Minimally, and I hate it when we put the word minimally and prayer in the same sentence because prayer is never minimal, but we should be praying. We should be praying, guys. We should be praying for our friends, our neighbors, our country. Prayer matters, and we should really take it seriously. So that we know we can do. But I wonder if I could give you guys a couple suggestions where I know that, like I said, pray about, like, what would we do during these times? You know, back in World War II, uh, Churchill, they would say they were dark times. And there was an actual speech that Churchill gave where he, he said, can I substitute out dark times and can we call it sterner times? He wanted to take out darker times for sterner times. So whether you want to call these our dark times or our stern times, they're not seeming to be the most positive, rosy circumstances that we find ourselves in. But some suggestions where I don't think we can go wrong. And I think we can start with Paul's example. 
He's in jail. I've seen some of those jails. I got to go to a Journeys of Paul trip several years ago. Literally trip of a lifetime. So amazing. But I remember getting to see this jail, I guess you'd call it. It is that it would have been. But it was, you know, just this great big hole almost. I mean, it's nothing. And that's what that's what jail was. Okay. There was no ping pong tables. There were no, um, there was no workout room. It was a slightly different situation for for jail. His circumstances, the politics of the day, they did not determine what Paul's mindset was. You know, he's he's not disgruntled. In fact, instead, he encourages us. In Philippians 4, 4 through 7, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. He's telling us, I mean, rejoice. He's not even just saying like, don't be disgruntled or don't complain. He's actually telling you to be joyful about the situation we're in. I don't know about you, but that feels like a hard ask right now, doesn't it? But that's what the word says. It says to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What reasonableness? What do we mean there? In several different versions, it uses different things for that word. ESV says reasonableness. Uh, King James says moderation. NIV likes gentleness. So when I think about that, I sort of want to put all three of those together. And it's saying, let our reasonableness moderation, gentleness, let that be known to everyone. I wonder how I'm doing at that. Is my gentleness known to everyone? You know, during these hotly contested times and just seemingly overly negative all the time, am I gentle in the situation? And is my moderation known to all? Or or do we just kind of fly off the handle? That's not moderation. We've seen some stuff in the news of folks that have flown off the handle and done unreasonable things. We don't want to be known for that. And then he continues in verse six and he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We have quoted this verse so many times, and I don't know what it is that our brains, we can read it, and then we almost forgot what we read three lines earlier, because we're going to get anxious about something in about five seconds. Do not be anxious about anything. It even says, with thanksgiving. I mean, when was the last time we really thanked the Lord for illness? When did we thank the Lord that we experienced grief in our life, that we lost a loved one, that we were in an impossible situation? When have we like thanked the Lord for losing a job? Why would we thank the Lord? But see, that's where the word challenges us, guys. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. And and I don't think it means that in a fake way. I think the way that Paul is able to say these words is because he is rightly knowing who is in charge. He knows who wins at the end. He knows what his goal is. He, he told us in that last verse that it were to press onto the goal that is heavenward. That's what, that's what we're pushing towards, not the here and now, not the stuff that we see in the news. We're looking for something that's beyond. All of this is just like, it's just a blip on the radar. It's so, so quick. I know it doesn't seem that way sometimes, but our heads know that. Like if we, if we look over all of history, it's it's nothing in comparison to eternity. But as you say these words and you maybe you repeat that verse, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, over in your mind, over and over, rejoice in the Lord, do not be anxious. 
But don't just leave them up at your head, you know? Say them out loud. Act that way. We want to act with gentleness and reasonableness. We don't want to be anxious. And then when you do, because you're going to, and I'm going to, but have something there that's sort of like a way to combat that anxious thought. Have a scripture that's handy. I love Psalm 105, 105.4, real short verse, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. That's super short. I even just love that la- that last line, seek his presence continually. Feeling anxious, feeling uh, uncertain about things, upset about something in the news, that is focusing on that, and it's not focusing on seeking his presence continually. I can just remind myself of that. I love, love sticky notes. Have I said this before? Guys, I love sticky notes. Sticky notes are my favorite. I stick them everywhere. You can always tell when I've got a big event coming up or a major project because likely my wall behind my desk will just be plastered in sticky notes. But for some reason, it's even more sad. Like, you know, I love to-do lists. I love the list and you get to check it off. That's super satisfying. But it's also really satisfying to write the thing that you have to do. And then when you've done it, you get to rip the sticky note off the wall. Love it, love it, love it. But sticky notes are great for verses. You can have a thing of sticky notes wherever you are doing your time in the Word, anytime, and just just write down, maybe it is a whole verse. Maybe it's just a word that stuck out to you. Maybe it's something that was an attribute of God that you were reading about that just neon lights to you. Maybe it's something that was you heard in the sermon at church the last weekend just write it down. Our pastor always talks about how it feels like when you go out of church, there's like these giant erasers that, that you know, just start working on your brain so that you can't, by the time you get to the parking lot, you don't even know. I feel like sometimes that's even happening even more now that sometimes church is happening in our homes. Thankfully, we are starting to get to be able to meet in church again, which is so awesome. But you know, when you're at home and you're watching church, there's a lot going on. And, and particularly, I think, for moms, if you've got kids and you're sitting there thinking, oh, what are we eating for dinner? And what are we? It's really hard when you are at home. You have to discipline your mind to really be focused on what's going on. So maybe that's a good time to have that sticky note handy there and write something that pops out to you and then stick it somewhere where you're going to see it all the time. Stick it on your mirror. Stick it on where you know you, where you do dishes. Stick it in your car, wherever you are. But I think we got to help ourselves out with this and take these things that aren't just in our Bibles and they just stay there until the next time we look, but we, we want to take those and kind of handle the word a little bit more and really make those things part of our mind. Write it down. But I think we do have to discipline ourselves a little bit, kind of like a soldier. Onward. Onward, Christian soldiers. Let's discipline our minds to, to take these things that we read, put them in action, let it change your anxious thoughts. That's awesome. Another thing we can do, he says in, if you back up a chapter in Philippians in 3.16, Paul says, let us hold true to what we have attained. Mm, Just that one line, let us hold true to what we attained. What can you do right now during this crazy time? Hold true to what you've attained. And so then there's the question, what have we attained? And this, guys, is the best news possible. What we've attained is the amazing, beautiful gospel that has saved us from our sins by Jesus's death and resurrection. On your best day, worst day, that is always, always true. And it's just a reminder that Paul gives us there in 316, hold true to what we have attained. And that's the gospel. We're saved. This world is not it. This is not all that, this isn't what we're living for. 
We are pressing onward to the prize that's in heaven. And Jesus won the victory. I think that's the other thing. I love um, reading the last couple chapters in Revelation. I know, you know, we've read the book, right? We've already been through scripture, so we know how this ends. But sometimes you need to go back and read that ending a few more times when you're having some of these days and just be reminded of the pure majesty and of the Lord, of what he does. And it does start to highlight how temporal the things that we're dealing with really are when you read those last couple chapters. But he's won the victory and we get to spend forever in heaven. And that is really, really good news. So I love that Churchill speech that, you know, that onward to victory. And the cool thing is, is while Churchill wasn't totally sure who was going to win, he was very optimistic and he was very good at delivering a positive message, but he did not know who was going to win. But like we were just saying in those chapters in Revelation, we do know. So don't get down about our circumstances. Another note from Paul, I love that he did not stop speaking the truth until he literally couldn't anymore. And like literally until Nero had him ordered and he was beheaded, he continued to speak the truth so boldly. So much in the New Testament and his letters. Now, he, you know how Paul is. He, he doesn't mince words. He calls it like it is. But he speaks truth and he speaks it boldly and he continued to do it. And I think that's good encouragement to us. Jim Elliott said once that when the time comes to die, make sure all you have to do is die. I've read that quote several times recently because the first time I read, I'm, I'm currently reading a, um, a biography on Elizabeth Elliot, and it's very interesting. But the first time I, I think that's the first time I read that Jim Elliot quote, and I think it's actually a pretty famous quote, so I'm not real sure how I've missed it all these years. But when the time comes to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. What does that mean? I feel like I was, uh, once I kind of mold on that a little bit, I put it through my Ephesians 5 passage that I love so much. You know, the do not walk as unwise. Be careful how you walk. The days are evil. Making the most of the opportunities that we have so that when our time is done, and only the Lord knows when that time is, that we have no regrets about things. We, we spoke the truth. Hopefully our gentleness was known to all. We weren't anxious. And that all it's left to do is be with the Lord. I want that to be us. I want us to be confident in the God that we serve, that the moral order that he has created and instituted is right. And we need to know what that moral order is. And we can't know what that moral order is unless we know our Bibles. But if we know our Bibles, then we're going to be able to recognize the things in our culture that are not in line and that don't fall in line with the Lord. And I'm hoping that as we can, as you know your scriptures well, and you can see these things that don't line up with scripture, that then we won't fall for any agenda that's going to lead us down a path that is contrary to the word. And don't forget that we have things we've been appointed to do. There is someone in your sphere of influence right now, and potentially lots of someones. Could be kids, grandkids, maybe it's a high school girl that you're mentoring, nieces, nephews, I don't know, whoever it is, there's somebody. And they do need to see your gentleness and your reasonableness, your moderation, and they need to see your courage to keep moving onward. 
So gals, don't get discouraged in these days. I know it's hard. We're in this together, but I hope that you'll just keep looking to the Word and that you'll just keep moving onward. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.